Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Still in Control. All right, so last week we saw the Apostle Paul, and he was on trial before Felix, who was the Roman governor of Judea. And so you remember that during that trial, the high priest Ananias, certain members of the Sanhedrin, and a slick attorney named Tertullus were all accusing the Apostle Paul of a bunch of stuff that he didn't do. They were accusing Paul of going around the Roman Empire and causing riots, and they were accusing Paul of, of having gone into the temple, brought, uh, bringing Gentiles into the temple to desecrate and defile the Jewish temple. None of those things were true, and Paul's accusers had absolutely no evidence to back up their claims, substantiate the charges that they were making against the apostle. Now, at the end of the trial, Felix knew these guys, Paul's accusers, they have no evidence. And so he knew that the right thing to do would be to release the apostle Paul. But sadly, the governor, he wasn't concerned about doing the right thing. All he was concerned about was about doing the politically correct thing, which was to do the Sanhedrin a favor and leave Paul, the guy they hated, in prison. All right, so how long was Paul in confinement? If you remember from last week, he was in confinement for two years. And so a lot of people right now, they think being in, in confinement for two weeks as a result of the coronavirus is really, really tough. Put yourself in the sandals of the Apostle Paul. He's in confinement for two years there in Caesarea, in Herod's Praetorium. And of course, we remember Felix did give him a little bit of freedom. And so maybe every once in a while, Paul and the guard that was assigned to him made their way down the street to the local public to get their groceries or, or meds, I don't know. But after the two years, a change occurred within the Roman government. Okay, so by way of quick review, we look at the last verse in chapter 24. So everybody look at Acts 24 very important we look at our Bibles and it says in verse 27 that when two years had elapsed Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus so there's a new sheriff in town so to speak a new governor in Judea Felix is out for his inept leadership Festus is in and so desiring to do the Jews a favor Felix left Paul in prison so today we're picking it up in chapter 25, verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, the province of Judea, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. All right, so we don't know a lot about Porcius Festus. What we do know is that the guy died two years after starting this new job. I met with my Calvary group virtually this past Thursday night. One of the guys was talking about um, how, you know, this Coronavirus is not necessarily a sign of the times, the end times. I personally agree with that. When you look at Revelation chapters 6 through 18, that's the tribulation. We're not in the tribulation. The tribulation and what's going to go happen in the tribulation makes this look like Sunday school. All right? So this is not necessarily a sign of the end times. But here's what's cool. One of the guys in my group said that this is indicative that we all have an end. We all are going to die. Festus, two years after taking this new job, he dies. Was he ready? Was he ready to, make, to meet his maker? I wonder, are you, are you ready to meet 
your maker. And so not long after he arrived in the palatial palace there in Caesarea to start his new job, Festus decides to go over to Jerusalem, scope that whole situation out. He knew as the new Roman governor, he had to make nice with the Sanhedrin. And by the way, the Sanhedrin now is being led by a new high priest, um, uh, a guy by the name of Ishmael. And so quick side note, all right, so you got Herod Agrippa II, King Herod Agrippa II. Uh, he's given power by Rome to hire and fire the Jewish high priest at will. And so Ananias, you're fired. Ishmael, you're in. All right, so by the time Festus starts his new job as Roman governor of Judea, there's a new high priest in Jerusalem. Festus goes, he introduces himself to the new high priest. He introduces himself to the Sanhedrin. You know, it's kind of like, I'll scratch your back, maybe you scratch my back. There's some politicking going on. It's a 10-day trip. And somewhere in the conversation between Festus and the Sanhedrin, the man that the Sanhedrin called the plague, the Apostle Paul, comes up in conversation, and the religious leaders told the governor that they wanted him condemned. All right, so look at verse 2 of chapter 25. It says, and the chief priests and the, and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they argued, I'm sorry, they, they urged him, they urged Festus, verse three, asking a favor against Paul, that he, Festus, summon him, Paul, to Jerusalem. Why? Because they, end of verse three, we're planning an ambush to kill Paul on the way. And so the Sanhedrin basically said to Festus, you scratch our back now and summon Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem. We'll scratch your back later whenever you need our help. What they didn't tell Festus is that if he agreed, as Paul was en route from Caesarea to Jerusalem, at some point they're going to uh, ambush him. At least they're going to hire some assassins to do this, ambush Paul and kill him. All right, so how does Festus respond to all this? Look at verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. In other words, Sanhedrin, no way. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. Verse 5, so said he. Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is any wrong against the man, let them bring charges against him. And so Festus knows something smells fishy here. He knows they're up to no good. And so he agreed for Paul to face his accusers, not in Jerusalem, but in Caesarea. Look at verse 6 now. And so after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days... Festus went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal, the Bema seat. And he ordered Paul to be brought. And when Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him. Look at this, end of verse 7 that they could not prove. Paul right now is thinking deja vu, right? The same thing that happened two years earlier in front of Felix is happening now. Once again, the religious leaders cannot prove their trumped up charges against me. All right, so now it's Paul's turn in verse eight. And we all know Paul likes to talk. He likes to talk a lot. 
And so Luke, he actually summarizes what Paul says here in just one verse. Verse eight, Paul argued in his defense. Paul, looking at Festus, with members of the Sanhedrin around him, accusing him, he says this, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Paul looks at Festus in the eyes and he says, Governor, I am not guilty. <laughs> I'm not guilty of slander against Jewish law, sacrilege against the Jewish temple, and especially not sedition against Caesar. I'm innocent. Okay, look at verse nine. Let's see how Festus responds here. But Festus Wishing to do the Jews a favor, some things never change, said to Paul, well, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And right now, red flashing lights are going off in Paul's head. Warning, warning. In verse 10, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. <laughs> if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Look at this, famous words. I appeal to Caesar. So Paul was not about to go to Jerusalem and stand before the Sanhedrin in that city to be tried. He knew if I go to Jerusalem and stand before the Sanhedrin, I'm done. I don't stand a chance. And so he knew that his best bet was not in a Jewish court, but in a Roman court. And that's why he appealed to Caesar. I thought it was interesting in my study this week that the, um, the right for a Roman citizen to appeal his case all the way to Caesar had been around since 509 BC. So more than 500 years before the apostle Paul, this right had existed in the Roman Empire. And so Paul uses it right here and right now in order to save himself. Look at verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, he answered, well, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, let me give you a little bit of the backstory so you understand what's going on here um, from Festus's point of view. You see, Festus knew before he sent Paul to Rome, he would personally have to write a letter to Caesar Nero in order to explain why in the world he, the governor of Judea, would send a Roman citizen in his province all the way to Rome in order to stand before the leader of the known world, or at least the Roman Empire at that time. See, Caesar Nero, no doubt, would look at Paul one day and ask, why can't my governors handle this situation? I'm a busy man, right? And so Festus knew, I've gotta come up with some compelling answers um, in this letter if Paul's gonna stand before my boss. But he was at a loss. You see, even though Festus knew Roman law very well, and he knew Paul had not done anything to break Roman law. He didn't know Jewish law. He didn't know Jewish customs. So he had no idea why in the world this guy, Paul, a Jew, had so offended the other Jews. Festus needed some help. And it was right about then 
that his doorbell rang. Look at verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, here we go, Agrippa the king. This is Herod Agrippa II. Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And so Festus looks out his palace window and he sees the chariot of Herod Agrippa II and his companion Bernice pull up in the driveway and he's so excited. The reason he's excited is because chapter 26 verse 3 says that Agrippa II was familiar with all the controversies and customs of the Jews which made him the perfect person to help Festus write his letter to Nero about the Jewish squabble between the Sanhedrin and Paul. All right, so let's, let's think about this guy for a second. Who in the world was Herod Agrippa II? Well, obviously, Herod Agrippa II was the son of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I, if you were with us way back when we studied Acts 12, and I know it's like five years ago now, but when we were in Acts chapter 12, you remember Herod Agrippa I comes out in that um, big amphitheater in Caesarea, and he's got this, his royal robes on, and he's going to give a speech as a politician, and the sun's coming up, and it shines against his robe, and his robe is dazzling, and everybody in the crowd starts saying, it's the voice of a god and not of man. It's the voice of a god and not of man. And what did Herod Agrippa I do? Well, he's like, yes, thank you, thank you. You, and an angel struck him dead. <laughs> an angel struck him. He actually died later. Uh, he was eaten by worms, all right? And so Herod Agrippa II, his son, was only 17 years old when his dad died. 17 years old, you're not old enough to take on your father's responsibilities as the king of Judea. And so what happened was that Rome knew this. They got this 17-year-old young man. He's not ready and so what they did is they gave him some territories up to the north area, like the Sea of Galilee and farther north than that, where it's quiet because they knew this guy's not ready for the tumultuous uh, political situation down in Judea. And so what happened was they give Agrippa II the quieter areas to the north, and Judea comes back under the rule of the procurators, Felix and Festus. You remember when Jesus was around, Pilate, the procurator, Pilate, or the governor, he was in charge of Judea. Later in history, Agrippa I is the king of Judea. He's dead, and now Judea goes back under the rulership of the governors, Felix and Festus. Now, I want you to notice in verse 13, check it out. In chapter 25, verse 13, that when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice, Bernice, arrived in Caesarea. Bernice, who's this gal? Well, she was married to Herod Antipas, the guy who chopped off John the Baptist's head. She's married to her uncle. He dies, so she goes to live with her brother, Agrippa II. Agrippa II and Bernice acted like a married couple, but they weren't married. And perhaps the reason they weren't married was because they were brother and sister, at least half-brother and half-sister. And so even though Agrippa II and Bernice had the same dad, they had different moms. And they lived, at least to most of the commentaries I read, they lived in an incestuous relationship. All right, so try to follow this. Herod Agrippa II was Bernice's lover and brother from another mother. I know that sounds like 
uh, lyrics to a bad rap song, but nonetheless, it's kind of like a Jerry Springer show here, but I'm just giving you the background of the villains here in the Bible. And so they're living in incest, totally gross, forbidden by God's law. And Herod Agrippa II, you remember this, he was an expert in Jewish customs. He had been given the oversight of the Jewish high priests, fire them and hire them whenever he wanted. And he was given oversight of the care of the Jewish temple. And so once again, he's a great resource to help Festus write his letter to Nero about this squabble between the Sanhedrin and Paul. All right, so what we're gonna do now is we're gonna look at verse 14 and we're gonna read all the way to verse 22 and then we're gonna apply the scriptures to our lives. All right, so Acts 25, verse 14. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case out before the king. Okay, and so Bernice, Agrippa II, hanging out at the palatial palace with Festus. They're talking about Paul. Festus tells Agrippa II, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. Verse 15. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. And so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Verse 19. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, Judaism. Look at this. And about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Go, Paul. His light's shining bright in a difficult situation. He's sharing the gospel. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions. You know, I'm a Roman pagan. I have no idea what these Jews are talking about. I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, Nero, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Now, Agrippa II, he's intrigued, and he says in verse 22, I would like to hear the man myself. And Festus says to the king, tomorrow you will hear him. All right, so let's apply this to our lives. The rest of our time today, we're going to try to put ourselves in the Paul sandals. We're going to try to feel what Paul felt. Two years prior to where we are in our Bible, remember this, Paul was beaten viciously by a mob. He was accused falsely by the Sanhedrin. He was threatened to be murdered by over 40 people. He was used as a political pawn by Felix. And if that's not enough, if that's, you know, not enough to to make you have a bad day, he was put in prison for two years. 
Now, imagine Paul. Before this, for 20 plus years, he was a free man. He would travel around the Roman Empire. He would preach the gospel that Jesus died and rose again to thousands of people. He planted, you, you know, you've been with us as we've studied the book of Acts. He's planted so many local churches, you can't even count all of them. But right now, where we are right now, he's in confinement. He's in confinement for two years, unjustly held for crimes that he did not commit. Paul is going through a really tough time. He just wants things to get back to normal. But instead of that, he finds himself in confinement. Can anybody relate to what I'm talking about here? All right, and so this passage begs us to answer at least two questions. Question number one, where's God when times are difficult? And question number two, if God is all powerful, why does he allow bad things to happen? All right, so the answers to these two questions have particular relevance to everybody today in light of the COVID-19 crisis that we're all dealing with. All right, so question number one, where's God when times are difficult? Here's the answer. You ready for the answer? He's right where he's always been, on his throne. All right, so where's God's throne? The Bible says that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 103, verse 19. All right, so what's God doing up there? What's God doing on his throne? Psalm 47, 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. All right, so how long is God gonna sit on this throne? Psalm 45, 6 your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. And so, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how out of control the world seems to be right now, what you need to know as a believer is that God is still in control. God is sovereign. All right, so what in the world is divine sovereignty? And so, in my opinion, one of the greatest theologians of modern times Dr. Norman Geisler, who's with the Lord right now, he says that sovereignty is God's control over his creation, dealing with his governance over it. Sovereignty is God's rule over all reality. And so once again, no matter how bad things get, no matter how out of control things seem to be all around us, what you gotta do is be still and know that he is God. What you gotta do, Christian, is that you gotta stop yourself from freaking out and you've got to realize that my God is in control and he's ruling over all reality. And so his sovereignty is predicated on his attributes. What are God's attributes? There's a lot. Here's just four. He's omniscient which means he's all-knowing. He's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. He's om, uh, omnisapient, which means he's all-wise. And he's omnibenevolent, which means he's all-loving. And so since he's omniscient, nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows all and sees all. And since he's omnipotent, all his purposes will be fulfilled. He's strong enough <laughs> to carry out all of his promises and all his purposes in this age and the age to come. And since God is 
omnisapient, all wise. It means he always makes the wisest decision in every situation. And since God is omnibenevolent, you can know that God loves you with an everlasting love. And he always has your best interests at heart. So what are the two questions again? Number one, where's God when times are difficult? The answer, where he's always been, sitting on his throne, sovereign of the universe, ruling and governing over all. Okay, question number two. If God is all powerful, why does he allow bad things to happen? Let me start by saying this. God did not create evil. I want to say that again so he really lets that sink in. God did not create evil. And so a perfect God can't create anything imperfect. A good God cannot create anything evil. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, when God created the heavens and the earth, there's an often repeated phrase that we see over and over and over again after the various days. You probably know it by now, uh, by heart, if you've been reading um, Genesis lately. The phrase that you see over and over again is this, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. In fact, when you get to the end of the sixth day in Genesis chapter one, verse 31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And so the concerning the creation of the material universe, you need to know that a perfect God created a perfect world with perfect creatures. In Genesis chapter one and two, Adam and Eve, the first couple, were absolutely perfect. When you get to Genesis chapter three, everything changes. You guys know the story. I don't have to retell it. Suffice it to say that Adam and Eve failed. Adam and Eve sinned and the fall of mankind occurred. Now this is what theological liberals, this is what many secular humanists, this is what they deny. They deny that there's anything such, uh, that they, they, they relegate the garden story to a fairy tale and the fall of man. Well, that's just religious uh, talk. But, but, but they're, they're missing the whole thing. You see, when, when a good God creates, all he can create is good. <laughs> when a perfect God creates, all he can create is perfect. And so Adam and Eve sinned. And the fall of mankind occurred and the result was that sin and corruption entered God's perfect creation and it spoiled everything. And so on that fateful day when Adam directly disobeyed God and just took a big chunk out of that forbidden fruit, on that fateful day, you need to know that humanity and all nature fell. They fell into decay and death. And so a perfect earth became cursed and the result, to a large extent, is that we live on a crazy, chaotic planet. <laughs> a place that's often filled with danger and disasters and disease and death, all because man chose to turn his back on God and sin. And so, if you're with me in your living room, say amen. I'm going to try to hear you. All right, you got to get this right here. A good God cannot create evil, but a good God did create two perfect people 
who had free will, and that, ladies and gentlemen, made evil possible. And someone says, well, why in the world did God create Adam and Eve if he knew that they were going to sin against him and bring evil into the world? Why, God? Well, would you prefer that God had created robots who never have a choice? In his book, Mere Christianity, I've given you this quote before, but it's timely, and I'll give it to you again. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love. Have you noticed robots can't love? Makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata of creatures that work like machines would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And so, ladies and gentlemen, a world filled with programmed people with no choice, as C.S. Lewis says, would hardly be worth creating. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that God did not bring evil into this world. Humans did. But how many of you guys believe that in spite of our failure, God is still in control? That in spite of our unfaithfulness, God is still faithful. You see, because even though evil entered into the world, here's the good news. Christ came. Jesus Christ came to this sin-sick world on a, a mission of redemption. And you know what he did? He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, never sinned one time against God. Our second Adam did what the first Adam chose not to do. And our Lord Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, voluntarily chose to go to a Roman cross, take your sin and mine into his body on the tree, and he atoned for the sins of the entire world. He died, paid for all sins, and then he rose again three days later as the conquering king. And so as believers, we are in Christ. What does that mean? That means that Christ's victory is our victory. And that's why Paul could say in Romans 8, 28, check it out. And we know, in fact, I want you guys to all say this out loud in your living rooms. You ready? And we know that some things, is that what it says? No, no, no. Let's start again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not just a verse that you should put on a plaque on a wall, you know, just some religious wor words. This needs to become a reality in our lives. You've heard me say it before. You've heard the other pastors on staff here at Calvary say it before. You got to build a relationship with Jesus Christ because the storm's coming. And when the storm comes and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're gonna freak out. 
And now's the time, if you haven't developed that relationship, now's the time to develop that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that instead of freaking out, you and I can shine before the world and they can look at us and say, what is that guy, what does that gal have that I don't have? They're at perfect peace. Why are they at perfect peace? Here's why, because we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now notice it doesn't say all things are good. Did you see that? It doesn't say all things are good. It says all things work together for good. And so have you noticed all things in life are not good? Has anybody ever heard of COVID-19? Again, God did not create evil. You say, you think this virus is evil? Uh, Yeah. God did not create evil, but he allows it in a fallen world. God allows evil in many forms in a fallen world. Just ask Paul. We just studied it in Acts chapter 25. Beaten by a mob. Falsely accused by the Sanhedrin. Threatened to be murdered by over 40 men. Used as a political pawn by Felix. Put in prison for two years. But do you guys remember what Jesus Christ said to him when Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul in the middle of the night? Check it out, Acts 23, 11. This is God's word, the first two words to some of you right now who are watching this. Take courage. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, Paul, so you must testify in Rome. And so in the middle of all the evil that was happening to the apostle Paul, Paul had the assurance, hey, I don't, you know what? All things are working together for good. And come what may, I know this, God's gonna perform his will in my life and he's gonna get me to Rome because Jesus Christ said it. And if Jesus Christ said it, it absolutely has to happen. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will, not maybe, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now let's take a deep breath because I really want you to get this point as well. Paul could rejoice in his sufferings. You say, that's weird. (laughs) Well, follow what I say here. Paul could rejoice in his suffering and his difficulty because he knew that God was using that suffering and he was using that difficulty for Paul's good and for God's glory. Look at what Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, we, what's that next word? Rejoice in our sufferings. Again, not religious platitudes. This is what we need to be renewing our minds with at this time and living out at this time. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Well, that's a good thing. And character produces hope. Oh, that's a good thing. Okay, and so suffering, look at the first line again. We rejoice in suffering, um, that's a bad thing. Knowing that suffering, a bad thing, produces endurance, that's a good thing. And endurance produces character, that's a good thing. And character produces hope, that's a good thing. 
And hope does not put us to shame or hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit of God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you love God and you're part of the called according to his purpose, and so if you have answered God's call and received Jesus Christ, I mean, you've turned from your sins to Jesus Christ You've received him as your savior and Lord. You need to have the assurance today that all things are working together for good for you. And so right now, are you struggling with the ramifications of the coronavirus? Are you struggling because of other things? Remember this, your suffering is producing endurance and your endurance is producing character and your character is producing hope. And if that's not enough, God is pouring out his love for you into your heart by the Holy Spirit, which I don't know about you, but that can help you get through anything. So where's God when times are difficult? Right where he's always been. He's sitting on his throne, ruling over the universe. And if God is all powerful, why does he allow bad things to happen? Well, for the believer... God allows all things, including bad things, for our good and for his glory. God bless you guys.